Today, the lectionary text comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. It is a very familiar story. It is one that uh, perks up our imagination as we put ourselves in the story and, and try to envision what it would have been like. It is uh, always relevant, this story. Uh, it never goes out of season, but often understood only on the surface of things. Um, Emily Haig did a wonderful job of, of explaining sort of the surface meaning of the story or one of the meanings to our children, and it was good advice, but I intend to go a good be- bit deeper now with you all. So let us listen for the Word of God from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and, and first of all, know that this story occurs immediately after Jesus has fed the 5,000 kind of out away in the wilderness, and the story uh, picks up from there. Immediately, he made the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds that he had just fed. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves was far from the land, and the wind was against them. And early in the morning, about four o'clock, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Then when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. So it's common, all of us have had the experience of beginning something with enthusiasm and confidence and maybe even some clear expectations of what it's going to be like. And then somewhere along the way, we begin to struggle. It's a lot harder than we thought. And we start to maybe even question, can we do this? Or even should we have even tried to do this? We may regret having started, like a home repair, or a do-it-yourself car repair, or really any do-it-yourself project. Uh, Maybe getting married and being married falls into that category, or raising children, taking AP courses, I don't want to start you on the school year on a downer, but that could, that could fall into that category. 
one of my favorite places is Cades Cove. It's in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It has a, a, uh, a paved 11-mile loop around it. And on a couple days of the week, they close it to cars so that only pedestrians and bicyclists can, can go on that loop. And so you get up early in the morning, get your bike, and it's this magical place of wildlife and, and God's creation. Beautiful scenery, quiet, all you hear is the sounds of nature. Uh, and, uh, and it starts with this wonderful, probably mile and a half, downhill, gradual coasting. You can pick up a lot of speed. And you think, this is going to be really easy. And then about maybe three miles in, you start to hit the hills. And, and then on the second half, it really gets steep up and down. So the, the downhills are so steep that the signs tell you you have to get off your bike and walk downhill. It's just too dangerous to ride downhill. There are no signs warning you about the uphill, though. It is, it's awful. Uh, you, you, you try to get up speed to get going, and you get about halfway, and then you just feel like your leg, something has just hit your thigh muscles, and you just cannot pedal anymore. And so often many people end up walking up some of those steep hills. So it's, it's common to start something out, to make a commitment, maybe without knowing where it's going to head, uh, without really considering the future. Uh, we do this as a nation. We, we probably did this during Reconstruction after the Civil War. We did this in the war in Iraq. And I don't know what's going to happen in North Korea, but we, we know that it's easy to start something and not always so easy to bring it to closure. I was raised in a very stable home. Uh, we went to the Lutheran church. My parents were just kind of middle class, um, you know, sort of solid Midwestern folk. And my life was very boring and predictable. And, uh, and then in high school, I got involved in Young Life. And it was this exciting thing and all this uh, great fun and, and hopefulness and love. And, and it meant so much to me. Uh, when I went away to college in Nashville, they had a large Young Life group. And I immediately volunteered as a college leader in Young Life. And, uh, you know, things were going great. I had this big circle of Christian friends and people that were teaching, discipling me in faith. And, uh, and gosh, I, I just felt like life was just as it should be. Until December 6th, my freshman year. I was 18. Uh, it was a Monday. It was the beginning of finals week. And... Uh, I got a phone call about 7.30 at night, and it was the pastor of my church, whom I hardly ever had spoken a word to. Really strange. And he said, Bill, I'm sorry to tell you, your father has just died. He had a heart attack. And uh, from then on, I don't remember anything he said. I just went completely numb. And he put my mother on the phone. I don't remember the conversation, but I know we made arrangements for me to fly home the next morning. Uh, and so that I did. 
And so obviously my world was turned upside down or torn apart. Uh, I, I just can remember certain things happening. I remember a song from the funeral. I remember how odd I felt, how uncomfortable it was for people to look at me. Uh, I remember walking into my living room when I arrived from college and all of my aunts and uncles were there and I thought, man, we never get together. What are you all doing here? And somebody said to me something like, now you're the man of the house because I was the only son. And I resented it. I didn't want to be the man of the house. I didn't sign up for this. My world is falling apart. I can't, I can't be the man for anyone. I'm, I'm broken. I remember in the weeks and months ahead feeling this heaviness in my chest. I would lay in bed at night and feel my breathing and feel my heartbeat and wonder if my heart was going to stop suddenly. I wondered how long I would live. I wondered why some hearts beat and others stop. I had all of these questions, all of this anxiety that built up in me. I talked about it with no one. And I asked God these searching questions about why, how. How is my mother supposed to go on? She has two little kids, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. She's living in a city that she, where she knows hardly anyone. What is she going to do? Am I going to have to drop out of college now and support my family? What is that going to look like? I don't know how to do anything. So I had all of these questions, all of this anxiety, no one to talk to, all of this worry about my family. And all of this unresolved stuff toward my dad, whom I could no longer talk to and work it out. Uh, Feelings of anger, feelings of being not given what I deserved. uh, All kinds of mixed up feelings that that an 18-year-old boy had. So I think about the disciples in this storm. Obviously an image of Christians on the journey of discipleship, it's, it's a struggle sometimes. We may start out and the waters are calm, but obviously it, they're not always calm. We all go through storms in life of various kinds. And Jesus in the story comes along and joins them and calms the storm. The boat doesn't sink. Peter gets out of the boat. He's foolish. He's crazy, but he, he gets out and he starts to sink and Jesus is there, Johnny on the spot, pulling him up. But it just doesn't always seem to work out that way. How is this story real? Can, can I interrupt? This is obviously planned. <laughs> What's not planned is what comes next. Um... Bill and I have been talking about this story a lot lately, especially this week with all the deaths we've been facing and the fear that we've had is that the surface understanding of this story seems to imply that if we're faithful enough and good enough and 
if we're in the, all the boat together. And whatever waves or storms will come at us, Jesus sooner or later will come for us and grab us and save us and put us back into, out of harm's way. And I want to thank you for your story sharing that that's not always the case, that there are often many, many times and places in our, our lives where Jesus doesn't seem to be present. And so when we read this story from the surface level, uh, maybe from the children's perspective, it is important for them to know it's good to risk and get out of the boat. Or, and it's also good to know that Jesus is with us. But later in life, as we grow older and experience many of the hardships and losses of life, it forces us to ask this question, where is Jesus? In the story, as Matthew gave it, I think on the surface level, we can read it literally, but I think it was always meant to be read in in more depth. It was written, I think, as an allegory. As an allegory, and each little part of it is a symbol Jesus has just fed the 5,000, which was Eucharistic. And everything Matthew writes, of course, is written post-resurrection, after Jesus has died and been raised. Everybody is aware of that, and that's built into the common knowledge of those in the church. It's post-resurrection. And so the feeding of the 5,000, everybody goes, oh, I know what that's like. That's like communion. Everybody gets fed. Then this story follows immediately after. And it is the story of the power of God to bring order out of chaos. In Genesis, if you remember, it begins in the beginning was the word, and the word brought order out of this raging tomb, this giant volcanic sea eruption. It was just chaos. And for the Jewish people, the sea, and especially the night sea, was the source of evil and chaos. It's where the deep sea monsters live, like Leviathan. And there are lots of psalms that talk about facing this Leviathan sea monster and God, please bring order out of the chaos. Allegorically, we are meant to understand that this moment, that strangely enough, Jesus sends his disciples into, after he feeds them, he says, I'll dismiss the crowds, you get into the boat and go. At night, And certainly he was aware enough to know that there was a storm pending. And he sends them out by themselves while he goes up to the mountaintop to pray. When I face the death of Melinda Jenkins and when I face the death of Nancy in my own life and when you face the death of your dad and other times of loss, there does bring some solace that Jesus is out there somewhere praying for us. The Son of God who has this connection to God in a way maybe we don't, maybe we do, but that Jesus is at least praying for us. And there is some solace that Jesus is able to come to us walking on the waves of the storm, which is to say that Jesus as the Messiah is, in fact, the Lord over all the chaos. And there's solace that Peter, the church, me, so impulsively stands up and sees this person, this ghost-like figure. They don't know for sure who it is. And, and, And Peter says, if it's you, Jesus... 
then command me to be able to get out of the boat and walk on the waves. Because Peter wants some proof. I think Peter also wanted God to suspend the normal laws of nature and life and give him him an exemption. Like, oh my gosh, I've been drinking and driving and I just got stopped by a policeman. Could I just get an exemption just this one time and, and, and him let me off? Or I didn't study for the test, but could I somehow miraculously pass it? Or I'm in this big problem that I made, or maybe it just happened. But God, can't you just, I know other people, it normally happens this way. Couldn't it just, couldn't I just get an exemption this time? Couldn't you save me? Yeah, well, you know, it usually comes down to me. Um, However, I think we're meant to see that there's a lot more going on here than just me and my own salvation. The good news for me in the story is that Jesus is present in the storms of life in ways that we're not even aware. I know it was probably true for you as it was for me as I look back during the real stormy chaos of grief after Nancy died. In the middle of it, I felt like Jesus wasn't so clearly present and that God, in a way, seemed more absent than God had seen before, or at least the God that I had contrived in my own mind wasn't living up to the rules or the agreement or the negotiated settlement that God and I had come up with. This isn't supposed to happen. So that God is now more absent, and I'm experiencing that absence And I'm thinking, where is God in all this? Where is Jesus in this? Why is Jesus waiting so long to be so present? But then all along the way, these weird things kept happening and popping up that were not miraculous. They were so completely normal. Yet in the normalcy of them, they were miraculous. I would find a book left open by Nancy in which a page was opened that explained everything in terms of what she had been leading up to before she died. I found notes around that I didn't know existed. Events would happen, coincidences, we called them, but they were more like coinky-dinkies. And in a way, it struck me that, you know, Jesus is here. I just can't see him. And especially as I look back, I was able to see the presence of God a lot more clearly than I was able to see God's presence in the middle of it. And I think this story was written looking back. Exactly. I think it was written by people who had been in the boat and who had experienced the calm of the resurrection and who were experiencing that in an ongoing way. Not to minimize the terror of the storm. I can't imagine how overwhelming it would be to be in a boat, but I can imagine some of the things that I and we do face. And it can be overwhelming. But the story seems to suggest that the last word, the final word, is a word of peace. A word of companionship. A word of confidence in the midst of the storm. And aware that death does come often in times that are not right. 
that forces us to ask the question, why, that can't be answered, or where were you, with also the reassurance that Christ will come to us, if not in life, then in death, and pluck us out of the deep, stormy chaos of the darkness of Sheol and bring us back into community, which we call heaven. That's the promise I get from the story. Sometimes Jesus does come in life, and sometimes Jesus comes in death. But all times Jesus is there in ways that we're never really clear. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you.